going to be in John, first of all. You know, as, as followers of Jesus, I think, that, I think that we have a really unique role in our world. And in fact, that role is, is so unique that we're often thought of, are you ready for this, as being different, weird. The Apostle Peter called us peculiar. Some of us fit that bill more than others. <laughs> but, you know, the reason that we are unique is due to the fact And this is what the Apostle Peter was referring to when he called us peculiar. The reason we're peculiar is because we have a relationship with God. That can't be said of everybody in our world today. But we have a a unique relationship because even while our citizenship and true home, according to Scripture, is in heaven, we still have to live here on this earth. How many of you, maybe I ought to check, how many of you were born here on this earth? (laughs) Several of you. Uh, uh, you So my question is, if we are born here on this earth and we're bound to this earth, but we're born again into the family of God, that means we're heaven bound, right? I'm reminded of the fact that I'm still here on this earth every April 15th. Even though my citizenship may be in heaven, I'm required to pay taxes here on earth, right? So here we are firmly fixed on this planet we call earth. And while we are here, we, we bear children, we, we raise them, we make a living, uh, we carry out our earthly heritage, whatever that may be. And all of this, though, poses a problem. And here it is. How can we be in this world but not be a part of it? It may not be our home, but it is our current residence. And as a result of living here, we face this powerful pressure to to abandon the lifestyle of our Heavenly Father, opting rather to to live a prodigal lifestyle in in the world today. And, And, you know, I guess I've thought about this, perhaps you have too, but I've often wondered why would God leave us in such a hostile environment. Wouldn't, wouldn't it just make sense for God to just take us on to heaven just as soon as we become saved? And, and then all the pressures that, that make it tempting for us to become impressed with the things of this world and its power, especially from places of great authority and influence, they wouldn't have an impact on us. A couple of years ago, I was reading a a book by a name that you will recognize. His name was Charles Colson. He was an advisor to President Nixon back in the 70s. Colson went to prison, as you may well know, for his involvement in the Nixon administration and, and in the, the Watergate fiasco. And while in prison, Colson was saved. His life was changed and transformed by the power of Christ. And he wrote a book entitled Kingdoms in Conflict. And in that book, he told of the times when he served President Nixon in the White House. And he said, he said that people would come to see the president. And while they were in the waiting room, waiting to be ushered into the Oval Office, they would boast 
of how they were going to give the president a piece of their mind when they get in there. Whatever issue or group they represented, they were, they were going to give the president a piece of their mind. But he went on to say that it always amused him that the lions of the waiting room always became the lambs of the Oval Office. He said that whether they were cattlemen or educators or labor leaders, when they stepped into that Oval Office, it was as if they became intoxicated by some strange fragrance and and their demeanor would change from one of anger to one of self-conscious timidity. Thankfully, he... I'll throw this in. Thankfully, he added that none were more respectful of the president in that office than were the religious leaders that came to see him. But I said all of that to say that the Oval Office would not be the place that you would just go in and take your shoes off and sit a while. It comes with a degree of authority. It's the office of the most powerful man on this earth And it would be easy to become impressed with the power and the authority that that office holds. So even though we as God's people are heaven bound, it's easy for us to be pressured into becoming overly impressed with the power and the the might and the authority and the influence that this world could offer to us. And conversely, I'll say at this too, We can become so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly value. Each of us from time to time has been around a a Christian whose piety is so overwhelming that we have to wonder why the Lord is delayed in taking them on home. But God has us here on this earth for a purpose. So therefore, he doesn't provide us with an escape route to heaven as soon as we are saved. I love what Bible commentary and A.W. Tozer has to say about our uniqueness. He said, and I quote, a real Christian is an odd number. He or she feels supreme love for one they've never seen, talks familiarly every day with someone they cannot see, expects to go to heaven on the virtue of another, empties themselves in order to be full, admits they are wrong so that they can be declared right, goes down in order to get up, are strongest when they are weak, richest when they are poor, happiest when they feel the worst. They die so that they can live, forsake in order to have, give away so that they can keep, see the invisible, hear the inaudible, and know that which passes knowledge. We are different, aren't we? So what then is God's strategy? What's the purpose of being heaven-bound people bound to this earth? I believe that nowhere in Scripture is that strategy more accurately described for us than in the Gospel of John, chapters 16 and 17. There Jesus describes for us in his own words what our role here on earth is to look like. And keep in mind that at the point in time when Jesus gives us these words explains to us his strategy, he's just mere hours away from his cross. Mere minutes away from that Garden of Gethsemane prayer where he prayed, nevertheless, God, not what I will, but what you will be done. Jesus shares this strategy with what has now become 11 disciples at his last meal And they have no earthly idea what lays ahead of them in the next few hours. 
I'm going to sum up his strategy in three definitive statements. And the first one is found in John chapter number 16. Three definitive statements, the first of which is this. You can have inner peace in the midst of outer pain. Look with me at the first two verses of John chapter 16. Jesus said, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Then skip down to verse number 13 where Jesus adds this. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. And then verse number 33, Jesus goes on to say this. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. You can have peace, inner peace, in the midst of outer pain. I believe that what Jesus is telling those 11 disciples is that the time is going to come, and he's as in essence telling us this today, those of us here today. The time's going to come when men will desire to kill you and believe that they're doing God a favor in doing so. He's saying, don't be so impressed with, with the authority or the opinions or, or, or the convictions, suggestions, or counsel of the world. And don't be intimidated by its threats or its wars to the point where you lose your focus. Because you will find peace in me, for I've overcome the world. And he, I believe, in essence, is saying to us, I can guarantee you this. In the midst of the peace you find in me, you're going to experience some pain. You're going to experience some suffering. You see, every one of us who have lived on this earth for any significant period of time as followers of Jesus, we've experienced some type of persecution for our faith. And and in those times, it's easy for us to ask the question, God, are you in this with me? Come on now. Any of you ever felt like that? God, are you really in this with me? I can tell you, both having asked that question myself and in answer to your questions, yes, God is with us. You see, as believers, we're not supernaturally immune from life's struggles. We, we experience pain. We experience heartache. We experience sorrow. We're victims of murder. We're victims of rape. We're victims of divorce and bankruptcy and being taken advantage of. Those are all the same kind of blows that worldly people suffer. But the good news is that there can be a peace that passes understanding in the midst of those struggles. And that brings us to the second statement of Jesus' strategy. And it's found in chapter 17. Here it is. We are insulated by divine power... But do not live an isolated existence. Listen to his words in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And then ver- skip down to, to verse number tw- uh, 16 with me. He said, 
this. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And then skip with me again down to verse number 21. Jesus says there, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then verse 23, I in them, you in me, that they may be perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Now let me put that in a nutshell for you. Jesus' strategy for leaving us here on this earth is to, for us to let the lost know that they need to be saved. Jesus has died for them, and that eternal life is available through that saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Friends, let me tell you something. In the midst of a world that's saying there are many ways to heaven, I'm telling you this morning, Jesus Christ is the only way. There is no other way to God other than through his son, Jesus. The phrase that's used in verse number 23, perfectly one, is translated elsewhere as Make us a unit. Why is it important that we be a unit? That we be as one? So that the world may know God. He wants us to have the same mind. The same purpose. One God. One Lord. One baptism is the way the writers to the law put it back in the book of Deuteronomy. Now see, here's the thing. Jesus is praying that even while in the world that those who are his be protected from the evil one. There's the, the insulation in the midst of the isolation, so to speak, or without the isolation, I guess I should say. It's almost like saying, in, you know, in the, in the midst of the threat of, of chemical and biological warfare, give them a proper mask so that, and proper clothing so that they can go through it. This sinful world, friends, is not something that we are to avoid by closing ourselves off behind some sanctimonious walls of righteousness, religion. We're to mingle with and associate with those in this world. We're just not to be like them. Rod and I were talking before service this morning. You know what? Jesus wants us to get out of here and go out there. He wants us to go out into the world where they are. And share the good news with them. In a world where Satan is ruling over the lost of this world, Jesus wants us to be salt and light, bringing favor, flavor and illumination, a difference in a dark world that needs the illumination that only comes through being in a relationship. So even though we are uniquely different, it's important that we be unified. And that all brings us to Philippians chapter number 3. Paul here, I believe, is realizing that we live in a mad, bad, sad world. But it's not a world that's impossible where it's impossible to reach people for Jesus. I want, I want to share with you this morning from this uh, fourth chapter of, or third chapter of the book of Philippians, just uh, from, starting with verse number 17, and we'll go through verse number 1 of chapter 4. Paul says, brothers, 
join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm. The church in Philippi to whom Paul was writing was a church in which people knew and experienced pain and persecution, but they were also people who knew peace. It was a church of people who lived insulated lives but who were not isolated from the world in which they lived. It was a church of people who, as we said in Jesus' strategy, demonstrated a unity that transcended all racial and social and cultural barriers. And in doing so, they pointed others to Christ. And we learn from John 16 and 17 that Jesus' strategy for, living, uh, for us living here on earth, here in Philippians 3, is the marching orders that Paul gives to us for the carrying out of that strategy. And very quickly, I'm just going to say I see four four statements that sum up those orders. One, there's something that we need. Two, there are those whom we are to live among. Three, there are those whom we belong to. And four, there is something that we must keep doing. Now let me just quickly expound on those. First, we need examples to follow. God didn't put us here on this earth... To live lives that are out of touch with other human beings. We as believers have a, have a wonderful God-given legacy. We read those names earlier from people whom we love and, and whom we emulated and, and looked at as, as our examples of people who have gone on before. Uh, you know, I, I think of the many wonderful examples that God has blessed me with in my life from the time that I was a little child. And I, I would grow up thinking, man, someday I want to be like them. Someday I want to be like them. I, I want to have their discipline. I, I, I want to have, I want to have their, their enthusiasm. I, I want to, to mirror in my life the way that they lived their lives. Paul is actually one of them. He says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. His student Timothy, Paul says to Timothy and. 2 Timothy chapter number 3, he said, As for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it. We've had those heroes who've gone on before. But you know what? I think that there are still some of us who just might be heroes to those who are following us. Does that put the pressure on anybody? There are people that are looking at, up at us. There are people that are looking at us and the way that we live our lives. And in looking at us, what is it that they see? Do they see Jesus or do they see someone that's no different than they are? Friends, I'm telling you, it's important that they see something different than the misery and the, the, the drama that they live in every day of their lives. What they need to see is that it's possible to have peace even in the midst of difficulty. 
There are some who have said to our family, and particularly to Tricia over the last four or five months, man, how do you go on? <laughs> and, and they don't know the, the, I mean, they probably understand the struggles that Tricia particularly is going through, but man, she's handling it with a grace that can only come from God. There's a peace that she knows. I, I, I had a, another incident with my I guess I can still call him my friend from California this past couple of weeks. He got upset about me commenting about my hope for heaven and seeing Justin when I get there. He texted me here a couple of weeks ago and he said, you know what, we really need to talk. He said, you're too needy. I'm convinced that when you die, you're dead. Your brain is dead, your body's dead, and that's it. And you're, you're just working yourself up over something that isn't going to happen. You know what? I'd rather be right and find out that I'm wrong Amen. than be wrong and find out that I wasn't right. Amen. Amen? I have no doubt whatsoever because, you know what? And this is the tragic thing because I know he's, he's seen this happen in his own life as well when I have seen some of those who I have considered to be heroes of the faith that I've tried to emulate my life after when I see them get ready to pass from this life into the next and on a couple of those occasions I've seen this this look in their eye and them reaching out for something that wasn't me don't tell me there's not another side I saw it I saw it, I know that I know that I know that our lives are hidden with Christ in God and that there is an eternity to be, to be had for everyone who will call upon the name of the Lord. Now, I mean, I grieve over my friend who had, once had such a dynamic relationship with Jesus that he no longer believes but you know what? What he needs to see in me and in the people around him who call themselves believers is the change, the difference, the difference in the way that we live versus the way that he's now living. Is it tough? Yeah, it's tough. But my faith is unshaken because I know whom I have believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed against that day. Nothing can shake that faith. Secondly, there are many who, as Paul notes in verse number 18, who are enemies of the cross of Christ, and we are to live in the midst of them. That's where this insulation versus isolation becomes so vitally important. We, we live among those who are enemies of the cross of Christ. We do business with them. We relate with them. So don't ever get the idea that we are to restrict our social interactions only to those who believe as we do. We have to, we have to go out into the world. Every one of us ought to have friendships with people who are lost. I'll say that again. Every one of us ought to have relationships with lost people. That's why God has placed us here, to minister to those lost people. 
How else are they going to become aware of what Jesus can do? I remember growing up in the church in the 60s and 70s. And the thought process of winning people back in the 60s and 70s was bring a sinner to church with you. How's that working for you? That's not the strategy that Jesus gave us. Jesus said go into the world. Go into the world and be salt and light out there in that world of darkness. In that verse 18, Paul says that he weeps as he considers the heartbreaking realities of those who are lost. And friends, lost family members, lost friends, lost neighbors, lost business associates ought to break our hearts. One of the most common prayers that I pray on a daily basis is, God, give me a greater burden for lost people. Give me a greater burden each and every day. For people that are lost. Because they're destined for eternal separation from God and a future without Jesus. Not to mention the eternal punishment of hell. They're people who are driven by sensual appetites because they only live to please themselves and not God. They're dedicated to material things. They're trying to find meaning and purpose in things that are tangible but temporary. They're devoid of any kind of personal restraints. Because they have no standards to live up to, therefore they have no guilt. But their purpose is to live it up while they can. I'm not trying to judge them in this analysis. I'm not trying to condemn them or even point out that that believers are better than non-believers. But my point is for us to realize that our mission is to reach those people. To reach them and win them for Jesus. As I said earlier, we are to be salt and light in a tasteless dark world. And you know what? I, I was preparing this. As you know, I'm redoing this sermon series that is now some 26 years old. And, and I, I, as I was redoing it, I, I got intrigued by some things that I had read in recent weeks. And, and I wanted, uh, want you to allow me to take just a short rabbit trail for a moment. Because I think it's so vitally important that we understand the lost, the lost condition of our world. You know, there's a word that Paul uses in verse number, verses 18 and 19. It's the word many. Most of us aren't too good as students of the world population today, nor the spiritual condition of that population. But I'm going to give you some numbers that are current as of 2019. One, the population of the world as of January 1st, 2019 was approximately 7.6 billion people with the average life expectancy of about 68 years and the average age are you ready for this being 29.7 years the average age of 7.6 billion people there are 16,591 people groups in this world with 2,792 of those people groups being as yet unevangelized with the gospel of Jesus. They represent a total population of 764 million people, or 11% of the world's population. Then there are an estimated 6,909 languages in the world, and 4,675 of those languages have at least one of the following. Portions of the Bible, they've seen the Jesus film, they have Christian radio or gospel recording, but that leaves 2,135 of them without any of these resources, making up 
195 million people who have never heard the good news of Jesus. 195 million. Now, here's where it gets, here's where it ought to really impact us. In ministry, there are 240,000 Christian missionaries at work around the world, 95% of which work among Christian people groups. That means that roughly 30 times as many missionaries go to evangelized people groups to work with those who are already believers as go to unreached people groups where there are no believers. Now, I, I could go on and on with some statistics and tell you about financial resources that are poured into these ministry efforts, but I'm not going to do that for the sake of time. But just suffice it to say that it's estimated that the net worth of evangelical Christians around the world is $7 trillion, of which only 73 million or 0.001%, one thousandth of one percent, goes to unreached people groups. Let that sink in. To put that into perspective, in recent years, people in America spend more money buying Halloween costumes for their pets than the amount of money given to reach the lost of this world. If every evangelical church, every evangelical Christian gave 10% of their income to missions, we could fully support 2 million new Christian missionaries. Just a couple of more statements and I'll move on. 57,600 people die each day without ever having heard the name of Jesus. Additionally, the church of our Lord Jesus has 3,000 times the financial resources and 9,000 times the manpower needed to complete the Great Commission, which says go into all the world, all the world, and preach the gospel. Now, if those who are dying within those unreached people groups do not touch our hearts, what about those who work across the hall from us? What about those at our school that don't know Jesus? What about those families that are raising kids that live next door to us? Do they touch our hearts? I have to move on. But I, those, those numbers grip my heart. But thirdly, we belong to those who are bound for heaven, Paul says in verses 20 and 21. There's a Greek word that is used here. It's the word polytuma, which is translated in English as the word citizenship. And it's only used once in the entire New Testament, and it's in verse number 20. But interestingly enough, it's also the word that is used to translate our English word politics. It's used to convey the idea of being a good citizen, conducting oneself in a manner which is considered to be good. Now, I mentioned earlier that as believers, we are unique. We've been, we've been left on this earth to uniquely conduct ourselves in a heavenly manner, living among earthlings who are enemies of the cross. The difference between them and us is the matter of salt and light. The contrast in our lifestyles should be enough to make them sit up and take notice of the difference. Why? Because we are to be marching to a different drummer. 
We, that is the authority of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Unless you think that the best solution for your life is just to go on to glory now, let me ask you this deeply convicting question. If you go on to glory, who's going to take your place? Who's going to take your place? The purpose of our living on this earth is to know him and to make him known. He will someday make us known in a way that you can't even imagine in his glorified body, the church. But I'm living, and i got to tell you, we should be living in that same glorious anticipation where there's not going to be any more pain, no more dying, no more sorrow, no more sickness, and no more separation from our loved ones who've gone on before. And all of that leads me to this statement. The problem is not that we are so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly value. The problem is we are so earthly minded that we're no good at all. Why would a lost person want something from someone who looks and acts and sounds just like they do? To buy into something that is no different than what you already have doesn't make sense. And that brings us to the last strategy, implementation of Jesus' strategy that Paul gives us. It's found in verse 1 of chapter 4. We are to stand firm, but we are not to stand still. Do you know why? Because anything that stands still collects dust. Have you found that to be true? We often have a tendency to stand still, and that's not our purpose. Because you see, in the midst of the war, it's easy for a soldier to feel panic and be even tempted to defect and join the other side. But as it relates to the life of a believer, it's easy to lose our bearings about whose side we are on. We win. Let me say that again. I don't think you heard me. We win. Read the last chapter of the book. We win. Jesus said, I have overcome the world, and because I have overcome, you are overcomers. To stand firm means to consistently, continually, firmly represent Jesus and his message. And as the worship team comes with that in mind, let me just ask you several rhetorical questions. How's your battle coming along? Are you following good examples? Are you regularly encountering enemies of the cross? Are you sharing with them the answers to the questions that they are asking? Does your conduct reflect that you are a citizen of heaven? Are you standing firm, but not standing still? You know, there's a really good chance that God's not calling each of us to a foreign field to missions. I know he hasn't made that call on my life yet. And that should let you know that I'm not trying to guilt you this morning into the preaching of this message by saying, hey, we need more missionaries to reach the unevangelized people groups of the world. I'm just saying to you, how can we go right where we are? How can we go into the world and do what Jesus called us to do in his great commission? So my challenge to you this week, and I know it's a busy week, is to find the answer to that question. And I guarantee you, That every one of us in this room today can go in some way. We can go. 
Here it is, almost Christmas. And what better gift, Rod, to give to them than to go with the good news of Jesus? Someone who desperately needs some good news, wouldn't it be a great gift to give them? To share them how Jesus can change? I'm praying that you'll allow the Lord to direct you and that he will show you that an opportunity to minister his love and his goodness that, to that person that you can go to. I'd like for you to stand to your feet with me. And as we close this morning, I want us to just think about something. God's strategy really isn't all that strange. In fact, it's probably the most loving strategy ever conceived or carried out. But is the attitude with which we treat lost people, whether they be in our family, our circle of friends, our acquaintances, is the attitude that we convey to them one that's compassionate, understanding? Or does it resemble the Pharisees, judgmental? And holier than they are. Man, I'm telling you folks. You know what made the multitudes follow Jesus? He loved and had compassion on people who had never been loved. Or shown compassion in their lives. And you know what? Our world has a lot of those same people even today. They need to be shown compassion. They need to be shown understanding. (laughs) Can I just say this to you? I don't want to be offensive. Sometimes we Christians act so shocked that sinners act like they do. Can I just ask you a question? What do you expect sinners to do? Sin. Right? You ought to be familiar with it. We used to be one of them. They've not been illuminated with the good news of Jesus. They've not been transformed by his grace and his mercy. We should have no other expectations of them. Therefore, we should lose all of our judgmentalness. We should lose all of our piety thinking that we're better than they are. The only difference is we have Jesus and they don't yet have Jesus. And yes, it's a mad, bad, sad world, as Paul says. But I believe that Jesus wants us to do our part to change it. You may say, what? You're telling us to live in the world? Yeah. That's what I'm telling you. Live in the world. As long as you're here, you may be do- as well be doing something good for Jesus. Amen. Heavenly Father. These are your faithful people that you're speaking your word to this morning. These are your faithful people, each one which you have called for a purpose and who is to live out your plan for their life while here on this earth. Lord, some of us have not done such a good job with that plan. We've vacillated back and forth and we've we, we've acted in, on occasion more like the world than more like a citizen of heaven. 
And so, Lord, I'm asking that your Holy Spirit would impress deeply upon our spirit this morning. That you have a plan and a purpose for us, else we wouldn't be here. You have a plan. If we're still living and breathing, you have a purpose for us. And that purpose is to reach the lost of our own individual worlds with the good news of Jesus. So, Lord, to your faithful people, people that love you, people who, whose lives have been ta- changed and transformed by your, your grace, help us this Christmas season to consider the interests of others as being more important than our own. And Lord, every person that we encounter is your creation, made by you, loved by you, died for by you. And you will love them. You'll love them forever. Lord, help us to love them into heaven. Help them, help us to show them your love so that their future can be secured and that they too can receive the greatest gift ever given to this earth. Jacob, would you lead us, please? Oh, come.